0: Uh, Nick Ramondo, legendary figure in American soccer, great goalkeeper, uh, and maybe most legendary for his uh, knack to save penalties. 59 penalty saves in his 20-year career, not including shootouts. Uh, the success rate against him by uh, shooters around 60% when the league average was 80%. So it's just really remarkable. Now, the question is, was there a secret to his success? Apparently there there was, uh, Christopher Camrani of the Athletic uh, convinced Nick Ramondo to share his secret in an article a, a few months back, a, a secret that helped RSL win an MLS Cup, and that's where my uh, two guests come in. They're sort of the protagonists in this story, uh, the father son duo of uh, Bobby and Jamie Clark. Jamie, tenth uh, year at the University of Washington, couple of Pac-12 titles. Uh, multiple NCAA appearances, twice getting to the quarterfinals, uh, 2019, rather, a 17-win season, the first time at UW uh, since 1983. They got that many wins. He was the Pac-12 Coach of the Year. Former Stanford All-American. He was the first Stanford All-American in men's soccer playing for his father, Bobby Clark. And uh, he also assisted Bobby at Notre Dame for a couple of seasons before he got involved as a head coach. So Bobby Clark, 696 appearances in gold for Aberdeen. Wow. Many of them under the management of Sir Alex Ferguson. Bobby inducted into the Aberdeen Hall of Fame recently. Uh, he turned to coaching after a playing career. Uh, Dartmouth, Stanford, 17 years then at Notre Dame, where he had a record of 216, 93, and 55, and a national championship. Uh, One of the great teachers, if he was doing a clinic, uh, it was uh, one of those things you didn't want to miss. Well, welcome to you both. Uh, When I read this story, Bobby, uh, I I just was like, oh, my gosh, I got to get a hold of Bobby Clark. Uh, But let's kind of tell the story, you know, for people who don't subscribe to The Athletic, they haven't read this thing. So Nick Romano had a secret and you were sort of responsible for getting it to him, although I guess indirectly tell us a tell us a story, Bobby
1: Well, as I understand it, it was Nellie Ryan Nelson passed on my secret. The only thing I want to say here, Glenn, is that Nellie never passed that secret on to me because i think i I think that Nick had a much better. Saving rate than I had, so uh, I I, w- I wish Nellie had told me a little bit when I was still playing somehow, or someone had told me, but uh, I I I think we really should really have had Nelly because I, I I'm not quite I I had a lot of things, it's a lot I had a whole list of things that I actually did to to you know when I was uh right. trying so to it's not just
0: one it. yeah, it's not just one thing you know as far yeah. as yeah
1: is is uh. I, I, I mean did, did uh, I, I think you took penalties, JB I don't think I ever told you much about how to take penalties, let alone save them or when it was did, did you did, 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 did we ever talk much about penalties? Can you remember that?
2: Uh, you know I don't you know it's one of those things I would say maybe that Ramondo had the 2.0 version you know he had the the newer model that was a little bit stealth or sleeker than the old one that worked a little better maybe but um no I think the idea of um ball placement and you know tipping your hand when you're placing the ball was always the uh the, the thought so as a shooter um you know and in my limited penalty experience it was always trying to tip the other way a little bit so if you're gonna if you're gonna show your hand while you were placing the ball and your and your foot placement that you're gonna show it a little bit differently um but heck heck it worked but we have different experiences with Raimondo because we remember you know my dad and I him him saving a lot of shots for UCLA and and um you know uh, basically denying our Pac-12 title so um I'm not sure we would have been giving him the secrets had we known you know what he did to us earlier in the career
1: no that, I remember that game I think it was a big game it was played at UCLA I think we ended up losing one nothing. I think if you, I think it was Carlos Bocanegra scored with a header it was a corner kick uh, and we had a kind of zone defense and uh with only one man I said you got to pick up, it, it, it's Carlos. And I think we put Shan Gaw was the man that we put to Markham. And I don't know where Shan was. I can still give Shan a hard time about that one. But anyway, we, we we they scored a goal and we we were all over them, if you remember that game. And Nick Nick was fantastic. Nick was a great goalie. I remember first seeing him up at Salt Lake City, playing in the regionals, you know. And uh, he was terrific, and Siggy already had uh, Siggy already had them all signed up for, uh, for for UCLA, and then of course Siggy actually was the under twenty coach at that time, and he he took Nick with them, I think, to Nigeria. I think that at the same time as uh, Lee Morrison would have been in that squad. Uh, so no, Nick, Nick was a great goalie, but no. But coming back to the penalties, I used to. I'm old, so when I started playing, they had laces in the ball. You know, there were these (laughs) these brown balls playing. It was laces. So when folk were going to hit the ball in the old days, they would always make the lace point away from it. You didn't want to hit the lace, so you'd always point. And and folk, so you'd always watch. And I always used to, if there's a penalty kick against me, I, I would always sort of... I had a good idea where the guy was going to kick it. If I knew where he was going to kick it, I would further encourage him. But as he was walking up towards it to place the ball, I would always go to the side I didn't want, and I'd kind of rub my hands and pretend I was doing not very much. But And I I wouldn't show as if I was watching him, but I would always be watching him, you know? and I, I, I would watch how he placed the ball. Now, if he just came up and stuck the ball down with one hand, he, he gave nothing away. But a lot of guys would come up, and if you're not looking at them, they, they would actually put their hands, so you, you, they, they would be almost pointing where they would want to hit the ball. Well, that's, and, uh, that's fascinating. In fact, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a little statistic. The first ever shootout, that was used in European football was in 1970, and it was uh, the, the first one was Aberdeen versus Honved uh, in Budapest, and that was the second leg in Budapest. And we had we had won three one at home Aberdeen, and then we lost three one in Budapest. And uh, unfortunately, my my uh, my my we went to penalty shootout. I'm afraid my formula didn't really work because, <laughs> because Harbet <Harvard> won. But <laughs> that is the statistic. That was the first ever, if you go back up before then, before 1970, believe it or not, they used to toss a coin. Oh. They would play, they'd play overtime. I mean, there was big games. I mean, European Cup. It was the UEFA Cup at that time. They were just – the two captains would go up and toss a coin. The loser would go out and the winner would go through. And then they, they introduced penalty kicks in 1970, if you check wow. your record. Wow. And, and, and Aberdeen was the first the first team that, that actually was involved in, in, in a shootout. So
0: I wonder if not, anybody ever snuck in a coin that had, you know, two heads or something, you know, just kind of swap <laughs> it out a little bit. You know, <laughs> So, Jamie, uh, so let – I, I want to just specifically define what, what your dad's talking about, what he what he discovered, what the, where's the hand and how what are you reading exactly is the hand is actually kind of uh, like if it's your if, if it's your right hand and it's just slightly pointing towards uh, the uh, the side you're going to kick. I, I'm, I'm just trying to get a better picture of it.
2: I, you know, I think it's probably a little bit of a, um, a subliminal, you know, or, you know, it's, it's not, I don't think it's conscious probably when someone puts it down, but there's probably a little bit of like, you know, you know, and, and, and now I think, I think penalty kick takers have changed a little bit in terms of there's more penalty kick takers now that, that wait late and decide on the goalies movement. But I think go back five years and that was a rarity. Right. And so, um, but I think subliminally there was just a little, there'll be a little bit of a tell that like you would, you know, your, your body or your, your things would, would place it the way, you know, your, maybe your shoulder orientation or your hand orientation would either point to the right. If you were playing it that way, I'm a righty. So think about it that way, or kind of more central if you were going left and, uh, they're just, I know, I, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't foolproof, but it's, I think it was a, a yeah. one of many tells. And without the, the,
0: laces, Bob. Yeah, there's no laces on the ball now. Like, uh, but in, their hand,
1: uh, their hands would still the way their hands would usually point the ball the okay. way they want it to go, and and also, I mean, I, I used to obviously look at very much the angle of the run-up. Sure, you know, if they came up, if they were running at 45 degrees, I usually would think, and he's a right footer, I would think he was going to hit it across into my so I'm facing him I would be diving to my right I'd be thinking I would go to the right if uh, he was very steep if he had very little angle if he was running at the ball almost not quite straight on but then I always thought he was going to open his hips at the last minute and play it to the other side and then occasionally, and I learned this actually more when I was in playing for San Antonio, I came over and played a summer. Aberdeen let me come over for a summer, 1976. And I felt the folk made a huge, a big, big angle. You know, they almost were running around it. I, if it was a right footer, I reckon he was going to bend it to my left. He was going to put a bender in. And that was because we had some some Brazilians playing on our team at that time. And, and I, I would say, because we used to practice, you know, every so often, and I reckon because it was penalty kick deciders. It was before the shootout in '76 of the old NASL, and uh, there was penalty kicks, quite a lot of penalty kick uh, deciders at in, in, in that time. And, and we'd practice them, and the Brazilians, you'd obviously watch how the, all the people when you were practicing would take them. So there the, the was. So the angle of approach was also very important for me. And that made, and I think one of the things, the key things with a goalie, you've got to feel. If you feel confident, it's like I've, I've been playing a lot of golf just now since I have retired. So you've got nice. to feel confident with your putt. If you if you start, you've got to feel confident you, 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 with, with your shot all the time. And it would be the same, I think, as a goalkeeper. If you feel confident, I think you've got a chance of. of of doing something
0: about it. Uh, I'm happy you mentioned golf for those who are just listening. I'm I'm looking at Bobby. He's in, uh, he's in Scotland. And if he looks just to his left out the window, the course is there as you described it to me. That's, that's pretty nice. So you enjoying the uh, retired life?
1: No, it's been, it's been a nice challenge because I really hadn't played golf for, well, you know, when you're coaching Glen it, and Jamie, it, it, it's 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 twenty four seven. You're you're on the go. So that was one of the reasons I didn't play because I felt if I started to play golf again, I would I get into golf, and I, and I then I maybe wouldn't have been as good a coach. So I decided I never I never really played at all for about thirty plus years. So it's been a good challenge. You know, I'm I'm seventy five now, and and. Uh, so taking taking up a, a challenge at seventy five, you know, get back in, I've got my handicap down to fifteen. So it's not <laughs> bad. It's not, not bad. But I still, one of my old my old uh, Dartmouth players, my old goalkeeper Jesse Bradley, J- Jesse actually challenged me. Can I play to my age?
0: That's a big thing. That's a big deal. If you get, if you get to that, you can just, that's when you kind of retire from golf, you know, once you get to that mark, but. Uh,
1: so I I, rec- I reckon I've got to, I've got to live long. <laughs> Cause uh, I'd, I'd stay healthy. Hey, you, you got into something
0: earlier uh, and there's always a lot of discussion uh, about how to defend a corner kick. Do you do it zonally? Is it man marking? Do you put players on the posts? So J- Jamie how do you uh, how do you set up corner defending I'm in pretty constant discussion with people about how they do it some are strictly zone some are uh, a mix of zone and marking uh, some people put player on the near post not the back post some player don't put it on any post or, so coaches I mean um what, what do you do
2: there, there there's nothing I like more than when I hear pundits talking about that spaces don't score goals so why would you zone things you know but uh, <laughs> You know, but it's it's a ridiculous statement because goals are certainly the majority of goals are certainly scored from certain spaces. You know, so you know those spaces have to be occupied. Um, I don't think there's. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You know, I mean, analytics are in the game now, but there's no direct answer. And like with most things, if there was a clear-cut answer, everyone would do it that way. And I guess once everyone did it that way, people would find a workaround to beat that way. So that's the beauty of our game. There's opinions and thoughts. You know, we usually, you know, we, we change our our numbers and our zones depending on our, our players. So, you know, are you mostly man-to-man? Are you mostly zonally? You know, and I think that depends on how many truly dominant guys you have in the air. Cause I think if you can line a, um, a top of a six yard box with three great guys in a zone, um, then, you know, and even four, then, you know, you're not going to give up many goals there. Um, little guys are oftentimes the, you know, it's funny because big guys oftentimes don't move as well. So they're oftentimes not as good of markers. Right. Um, right. so they can be run around if you're strictly man to man. I would hope teams would be able to set good enough screens and have movements where you can lose a man. So it, it's tricky, but we're usually partially zonal and, and with the, you know, um, With, but now you know how do you deal with short stuff? It's it's certainly it's a fun aspect to the game, and I think it's something that has to be looked at a little bit game to game, but also overall you have a general philosophy.
1: Yeah, I I would I would all I mean when I said zonally we were zoned, but I was picking Carlos up man to man with 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 Shan, but we always went zonally, and then we I reckon most teams I don't know if you agree. You've done your homework on who's good in the air and how, how other teams attack you. And you've got maybe three, four at the most people that have got to be picked up that are, that are going to usually score. So you, you you cover, as Jamie says, the main areas, and then you, you pick up uh, the, the usually three or four, four guys. I remember, I'll tell you, this is when I first, even with picking up, rather than pick up men, you know, a big man with a big man. I remember I was playing for Scotland. We're playing against Wales and Wales had uh, some very big, they had the Davies, Ron Davies and Wynne Davies. Folk won't remember them anymore, but they were very good in the air. Mike England played with Spurs and they, they were really very strong in the air. And it was Billy Bremner who was a little Scottish player who played with Leeds United at the time. And he, he talked about the zones. He says, let the, let the little guys, we'll break the runs. So the, the little guys are quicker. Jamie talked about that. The big guys can be slow and, and lose. By, he says, we'll break the runs. And as long as we have our key players, you know, in, in, the, in the, 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 the main areas where they're liable to score from. Bobby,
0: you know, every weekend you watch games, you'll watch a game where the weak side, you know, they lose sight of, their area they follow Mm -hmm. the ball they track the ball maybe towards the front post or towards the spot and then that back post is left all by its lonesome
1: i i i think zones prevent that more than man to man i think when you're going man for man and you're just having the one usually guy plugging the, the front area you know if you're six yard area that you just out from the front post you have one man plug it and then you go man for man but i think after the first runs i think people lose their men whereas the zone should hold the right. zone even even if they win the ball at the front post you still if your zone's tuned in they should ha- they should still be in good position at the back and, and then your zone should come out together you know, it, 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 it should come out together. Whereas man-to-man, you can have centre-backs all over the place. Whereas, to be honest with you, my zone quite often would be almost my back four. So that when you did come out, you would come out as a, you know, as as your back four and and you'd all be in your positions. So there's less chance of people being, being caught out. But uh, yeah, no, I mean... I've, I think you could get somebody who is on man-to-man would, would be arguing with me there, you know, and, and uh, oh I think- Well, that's
0: the, like Jamie said, that's the, that's the fun of it. The uh, Jamie Clark, Bobby Clark, father, son, well, son, father, in that order, uh, our guests here. And, uh, well, I took us on that, uh, corner defending tangent. I can't leave
2: it without asking you about the posts. How do you guys cover the posts? Does that vary as well, Jamie? You know, I think, um maybe being the son of a goalkeeper we defer to the goalkeeper a little bit at times with that stuff and, and you know I think you, I think a lot of stuff in the game is about comfort levels too right you know if, if guys are you know go some goalkeepers are comfortable and and don't want crowded and some people you know like to have a little bit of protection around them so so we usually defer a little bit we don't you don't don't usually have guys on both posts we, we sometimes because we usually think that the the near post guy can backpedal, if the ball goes over him, can backpedal himself into the, into the near post. But it's um, yeah, that's goalkeeper dependent on the posts a little bit.
0: What did you uh, like uh, Bobby when you played, what did you want? I, I,
2: I played, I had,
1: I would have someone in each post, but latterly with, uh, with my Notre Dame teams, I I didn't have any hard on any post really. I, I would play with the people off the post. So but as Jamie said, your near post person would be off just a little bit. And right. if it did go over his head, he would obviously come back onto the onto the and guard, guard the back post. But often uh, I used to always want somebody on the back post, but latterly I, I, I to be honest with you, I we we we, we stopped playing. So I, I've tinkered with it, but I think is Jamie said, I, I always Asked my goalkeeper. You had he had to feel comfortable. You know, very few teams at the top level now play with people on the posts. You know, there's usually nobody on the post that they're usually off, but somebody is close that can come back. And that would be the way I would I would end up.
2: Yeah, no, I mean I think a couple of things on that. I mean, I think a leaving guys just on the post seems like a lazy occupation. And oftentimes they go to sleep. So if you can if you can have have them be involved, you know, i.e., not start on the post, but start a yard or two off the post and work their way into the post. They're just more lively. And A, it may help you with an offside situation along the way. And the professional game, generally, you know, you'd think in most avenues, it is a, it's a better version of the game below it, right? So the higher the league, the, the better the standard. The one thing I've noticed is, and crazily enough, it's not that way with set pieces. I mean, you know, you watch criminal goals going in every week and the defending is, you know, is lacking. And it's just something, you know, like the play is better, you know, 18 to 18, the play is better. But somehow um, not many professional teams defend overly well on set pieces. And the the ones that do separate themselves. But it's just such an interesting concept. You would think that that part of the game would get better too. And when you watch it, it really, really doesn't. Well, and that would
0: uh, suggest that they don't work on it in training probably enough, right? And and set pieces is always, that's always a challenge, right? How to, how to sort that out in your training session. You only have the boys for, you know, so much time, especially a college season. I mean, in, in the fall, I mean, you're playing two games. I mean, you know, how, how often do you really train? And then you're trying to get everything in um, for a professional team. It would seem like they'd have more time.
1: I think the best set pieces we ever had was at Stanford, Jamie. And I think one of the reasons Mm -hmm. was you you had the long, and I don't know, you still have that. When I was at Notre Dame, your your, your classes started in August, but when we were in a quarter school and Stanford was a quarter school, it didn't start till, you know, late in the, it would be the 23rd, 24th, 25th of September. So you still were training it and you had afternoons off. Well, you didn't have afternoons off, but you'd come back down, you have a short session in the morning, then you'd have a session in the afternoon, but you didn't want to do a lot. So you'd maybe do some keep ball, maybe head tennis, but then you would spend time doing doing set pieces. And I often felt that was that was a really good time to do set pieces and get guys making runs. I mean, we scored a lot of goals off, off set pieces at
2: I I think, I think there's a lot to be learned and I think smart people are always trying to learn and not criticize. Um, and I think the college game in a funny way, you know, you've, you've always, you've got, and in the youth game too, you've got less talent in theory, and yet you have to try to, you have to try to figure out how to manufacture wins and goals sometimes. Right. And, um, so there's, there's, there's something really to be learned from that. And, you know, what, what was laughed at and thought of as like, oh, long throws, that's college soccer. Well, now you look at every World (laughs) Cup and every Premier League team, and now you see long – you know, it's actually – it was a genius thought process, evolution of the game that college soccer was well ahead of the professional game at. And I think set pieces and stuff. I think because you're working with, in theory – maybe a lesser number 10 or a lesser whatever. And you still can have very organized defenses. You have to figure out different ways to solve the game. And, and um, I think smart people should be learning from, you know, up and down the game and looking to figure out solutions. And uh, I I do, I do think it is actually something that, you know, it may not be as, as pretty and as flowing of a game, but college soccer has always been very good and astute with uh, the set pieces Avenue of it. And uh, Liverpool has a throwing coach now. So there you go. (laughs)
0: For sure. <laughs> uh well, we I- jamie <laughs> clark who's the uh, head coach of the university of washington and uh his dad bobby clark uh, retired from two professions player and coach so jamie funny. you know you ended up going to uh, stanford to, to play for for your dad which is uh you know fantastic and there's there are a lot of children who will play for a parent in athletics not just soccer sometimes it's uh it's difficult on, on both sides so bobby i guess it's uh it's easy to play your kid if he's really good you know you're not going to get any (laughs) you're not going to get a hard time from people if your kid's good i mean i I don't know if there's if that's part of the challenge is trying to not show favoritism or trying not to be too hard on them because they are your son is that a delicate relationship or not you guys just got it done
1: yeah well i always told it'd be difficult i think the first couple of games, I I, I purposely didn't start Jamie. I, I think, I, I remember. I think the the opening league game was at Creighton. I think was that right, Jamie? If you 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 would be a, a sophomore, and I didn't start. And uh, Creighton were a very good team at that time. It was at Creighton. I remember. I I, I would go up and sit in the stand for the first. You know, maybe. 10, 20 minutes usually and get a feel of how, because we didn't have videos and everything. I wanted to get a feel of how Creighton were playing. And I remember they were absolutely going through it like a knife through butter. And I remember getting down and Brian Weiss was my assistant. And I said to Brian, I oh, have got to get Jamie on. <laughs> I think you went on fairly early that, year, that, that game. Uh, I'm, I, I I'm, quite, I'm
2: quite sure it didn't help us. It, it didn't help angry, us like, that much I that game. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: they were very good. We 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 had a long way to go at that time, but it was a great game because I think it, it showed up our weaknesses and it, it it made a lot of decisions easy decisions for us going down the line. And we ended up having a pretty reasonable season actually. Um, but they, they beat us. What was it? Was it four nothing that game? I think Jamie was I the
2: final. So. Well, they, you,
1: they, rem-
0: you remember everything—the good and the uh, not so good. Uh, yeah, no, Bobby. We, we, Hey, we go- As we come uh, to the close of this, uh, I'm I wondered what the, what are some of the things that really stands out about uh, you know you play you grew up with your dad you played for him you coached with him for a bit uh, what what are the what are the qualities that uh, someone listening can take away that you thought you know you you've both been very successful in your coaching
2: careers um, what did your dad have what was it. I mean, I, th- I think there's a few things that stand out. I think, you know, I, I, there's an incredible balance of, you know, there's not really a person in the country who doesn't like my father in, in the, you know, in the world of soccer, he's one of those people, but how do you balance that with an incredible drive to be successful and win? Cause he, you know, it's not like, you know, the, my dad wasn't, you know, out socializing 24 seven and not, you know, he, he absolutely cared about the process and, and, winning and, and making sure his guys were successful, but, but somehow um, never crossed the line into, um, you know, in, in, into the, the gamesmanship or the whatever. He never lost friends along the way. So, you know, I think that's an incredible balance that that more coaches have to figure out, including myself at times, you know, as a young coach, you're far too competitive and, and um, need to figure out how, how do I do everything for my team while still, being an ambassador for the game as a whole every day, you know, and I think that's, he, he walked that line incredibly well um, the whole time and in turn is loved by all. And yet has got a a record that speaks for itself. Well, I
0: remember uh, Bobby, you did a, I may have mentioned this to you before. I can't remember, but, uh, and I said at the top of the program, if you were doing a clinic, I was going to try to be there if if it was possible. And it was Atlantic City, I think the Tropicana, you know, it was in one of those uh, ballrooms with the with the with the chandeliers and and, um, uh, but you did a session in there. And I still to to this day, I use the words drift and explode, drift and explode. And I learned that from you on that day. And I think it's the perfect way to describe a movement of a player trying to separate from the defender. I don't know if you remember that.
1: Yeah, no, I still use it. I would still use that if I was coaching a, a group of youngsters tomorrow. You drift, you you take them away and, and you explode, you come back at speed. Yeah. No, I, I do remember that 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 uh, now these clinics were were they were good. Uh, and the big thing, I think I was always a teacher. I I I, I, I mean I gone to Georgia Hill, which was the phys ed college in Scotland, and uh, I actually taught, I used to train every morning with Aberdeen and I taught every afternoon. Oh. And I was the only player, all the other players had didn't have jobs. But My, mo- my mother got it with, when I was signing my contract for Aberdeen. My mother actually asked, see, I remember asking our, the manager, Eddie Turnbull at the time, what do the players do? What's a day like? And he said, well, they train in the morning and that's usually it. And she said, she called me Robert, my mother. My mother said to the manager, she said, well, Robert's training, I still had two years left at at, at college to be a PE teacher. Can we get it that he could maybe teach in the afternoons? Could we get that in his contract? When they're trying to sign you, (laughs) they say yes. And uh, I I, I taught all the the, the 17 years I was at Aberdeen, I, I taught, all of these, all of these years, every afternoon. We started this. We got together with the uh, purpose to talk about
0: the uh, Nick Ramondo's secret that uh, had uh, come from Bobby Clark through Ryan Nelson. I guess we've learned that. Jamie, you were a little in there. I mean, it was like uh, uh, it, it's such a, a fascinating story about a position that uh, is uh, understood by those who play it. I just tell my keeper coaches just make sure the ball doesn't go in the back of the net. I don't care how you do it. <laughs> so uh, it, it was really uh, interesting to hear uh, both your takes on that, and then uh, our, our conversation. You know, it's it's great to talk soccer with both of you, Jamie meeting you for the first time. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to meet you. And Bobby, great to see you again. I'm I'm happy to hear that the retirement is treating you well and you, you're getting your golf in. That's excellent.
1: Oh, I get my golf. I watch all the Aberdeen games. And actually, I'm trying to watch Dylan Powers. Dylan's playing today. That's one of my old Notre Dame players. He's playing for Dundee United against St. Johnson tonight. So I'll, I'll try and get a hold of that. And so it's, it's it's a lot of fun. And actually, my goalie, the, the, the big duck, uh, is playing for Portsmouth. Uh, maybe maybe today is, is making his debut, Big Duncan. So yeah, it's it's funny. It's there's a lot of there's a couple of because Ian Hart's Ian Hart's who was over here and right. So Ian Ian Hart's and Dylan Powers are both playing two Americans playing in the midfield. And your little boy played last night, uh, was it Cabern Harper, is it, Jamie? The wee boy Good that you talked about. Yeah, he played last night. He played last night uh, against Hibbs. A lot yeah, of the Celtics.
2: Gr- he's a great young, he's a great, he's a Patty Adorius boy from California who signed oh. at like 17 at Celtic, mm. but he's just he's just breaking through now. So that's a, that's a great, great form.
1: Yeah, no, Jamie's been talking to me about him. And I think Celtic had quite a lot of people had to, uh, self-isolate because of the COVID yeah, and, and he got, he he got his start actually in the game.
0: All right. Well, it's time to talk a, a little nutrition, specifically soccer nutrition for both the men and the women, because our guest uh, works with both uh, at Orlando city. Uh, Ricky Keene is the director of performance nutrition for uh Orlando City Lions, the men's team in MLS, the, uh, the Pride, and WSL, also uh, Orlando City 2 in uh, USL, and uh, the Academy uh, teams, uh, U15 and U17. And, uh, Ricky, uh, it's great to meet you, and uh, thank you so much, and uh, look forward to hearing uh, uh, what your thoughts are about how uh, athletes can uh, best prepare themselves.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: You're quite well and highly recommended by one of my former players at Rutgers, Kristen Edmonds, who's yep. on the pride. So uh, when she gave me the thumbs up, I said, okay, let's get her <laughs> uh, enough. on.
3: Good enough.
0: So if, if you had to just say something in general to a soccer athlete, just to start this up in terms of their nutrition, where would you start? What's uh, what's, what's maybe the most important thing to, to begin with?
3: I think I usually start with across the board, uh, whether what level they're at, what age they're at, what gender they're at um, is and how how many years of experience. I always really kind of start with, you know, their breakfast. I feel like that's the most common missed either missed meal or we're missing kind of the benchmarks that I'm looking for, because a lot of times um, with our teams, we're we're training in the morning. So that's really their their pre-training meal so which is r- really key and um so a lot of times are we getting enough carbs you know is there a fear of carbs so sometimes those that's something we'll work through um but basically that's probably my my first go-to is just what what are we doing for breakfast um it can be a little bit easier to monitor with some of the professional teams that you are serving breakfast so you're there with them it's right the, you know i'm picking out the foods you know right they, it's, it's a lot easier to make sure um, it's just, especially this last year, it's been hard because we've kind of um, with COVID um, coming directly into the facility without really having a meal and uh, as much. So we've had to slowly kind of integrate those guidelines and, and things, but overall um, it's, it's probably hitting that breakfast and making sure and educating them. I, you know, grams, I know how much they're going to need, um, but it's a matter of not having them do the math. The other thing that I work on is like here, this is, you know, this is what it looks like. Sometimes I just take a picture of, of, of if I'm working with them, you know, through through our WhatsApp me, um, app or anything like that. I'll take a picture. And that's they, they like visuals. Yeah. Um, if I can't be there right with them. So, you know, are we getting enough oatmeal? Are we getting enough? You know, add some fruit to that. Um, the other key in the morning is is protein. Are they getting enough protein before they come in? So yeah, Now you're
0: so you're there picking out. Uh, the meals for your professional team there. So not um, perhaps not many listening, you know, have that uh, luxury of of a nutritionist that's going to be able to do that or, or somebody within the team. So what are some important, so I think there's two scenarios here. There's one, some teams do train in the morning, no question about it. Club teams, uh, even college programs, but some don't train until later in the day after they've gone through maybe a class schedule if you're, if you're a college student or or a high school student going to your club practice at night. So we've got all these different scenarios. So could you address both those for breakfast? One, what, what they would have for pre-training and two, what they would have if their training's not until maybe the evening?
3: So I would actually still really get on board with them about about breakfast even they go well I'm not I'm not training till later so what we've seen is making sure that um, I, I kind of tell my athletes to, to divide and conquer the protein so we know that if you're not getting enough protein and that's really common probably in general they're getting like ten grams where I want them to get twenty maybe thirty grams we know then a 24 hour period that actually can can diminish their, their muscle protein synthesis or their recovery. So they're not realizing breakfast is actually important um, later in the day uh, for for muscle. So so even if they have a later session, I still make sure that we're hitting uh, that protein mark carbs. um, They may not have to have as much, um, you know, because they're training, they're going to still have time to get some more carbs in for fuel um, at that lunch or maybe even a snack before they, they, they train at three or four o'clock, something like that. Um, so we have some more time. Um, so that's probably the, I still would actually focus on breakfast, but, um, yeah, it's a matter of just, you know, dividing up that protein through the day, uh, no matter what time, um, that, that we're looking at and then just adequately hitting those carbohydrates and making sure they, they know that say on a rest day, you know, it's still important to have some breakfast, but their carbohydrate is going to be basically determined on their energy or their work demand. So if it's a long session, if it's going to be an intense, hard session, um, here in Florida, we have hot sessions. So I take all those uh, factors into consideration. And those are the times they're going to need more carbs. Um, So I I try to push those carbs earlier in the morning. So for the afternoon would be the same. So for a morning example would be um, oatmeal, bananas. And these are very common across the board for the male or female athletes. They're, um, you know, basically bagels, English muffins, all those common things. Um, and then we, and then basically fruit, a colorful. I try to go color all, all day as I can um, with fruit and vegetables. Um, so we can base our art, Our standard uh, for breakfast here, which can be anyone's standard, it's just um, whether it's served to you or not, um, is oatmeal, scrambled eggs, uh, blueberries, strawberries, uh, peanut butter. Um, Avocado is very popular. Uh, We have flaxseed, chia seed, um, so we'll get some healthy fats in there too. Um, Some nuts some walnuts those are probably our most common those are easy things
0: um yeah and those are some things that if you go if you're traveling you know you're traveling with your club team you're staying at a hotel and 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 sometimes they'll you know that the the package of your room is, oatmeal, you'll see yeah. there's oatmeal there's bananas there's berries there's nuts yep. you know in a lot of places some some do some don't but uh, you you know a lot of times maybe you can get your uh, even from those uh yeah. Those continental breakfast could still work.
3: It, it can still work. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, what, what are you working towards as a, you know, what, what's a training session or a match um, What's the environment going to be in um, then you, you know, I'll tell my athletes, Hey, instead of one fifth size of oatmeal, I want you to have two fifth size. Um, you know, and, and the difference there too, is whether if we're going for a match um, my rule of thumb is like, if it's kickoff it at 10 a.m. or, um, usually ours are, you know, at earliest three 30, but, um, I, I basically back up 24 hours and that's really when we kick in our carbohydrates, Mm. uh, we're basically kind of doing a basic carb, carb loading for those 24 hours. So that's a consistent push, um, that, that I'm working on. So that could be granola bars in between bananas, um, those type of things, the sports drinks, Um, We we have body armor, and so that's always around, and um, orange juice, chocolate milk, these are all very common things um, that that the athletes can have to get extra carbs in.
0: Ricky Keen is the Director of Performance Nutrition uh, at Orlando City, and I I have to ask you about, you had a particular challenge at the uh, MLS is back tournament.
3: Yeah, so what I would do, let's say we did, and I had to prepare for an 8 a.m. game, then basically that day before and possibly even that night before, cause we're going to, we're going to train match day to minus two as well. So um, that evening, that dinner before match day uh, minus two, then I would really kick up the carbohydrates um, and then all through the day, the next day.
0: Uh, Ricky Keen, again, our guest uh, talking nutrition, the part of uh, the day where, and I guess this could be, uh, you know, a youth player where they're uh, they're going to school, uh, you know, a, a college athletes uh, struggled with this all the time. Just uh, you know, wh- what do I carry on my you know, in my backpack, you know, to to help me? Uh, I mean, somebody might have three straight classes and then have to go to training. You know, what yeah. what, what what's what's a good thing to be in the backpack to, 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 to fuel you properly for training when you can't really stop and have a meal?
3: Yeah, and and that can that can definitely be very common in the, the high school and, and, or when we're traveling, um, I'd say finding out what, what your team is going to be, um, real accepted to as far as what they like. So it's an easy buy-in and, and ours, um, even for the men's and the women's team, I'd say our number one is the fig bars. Um, you can get you those. I like
0: those. Yeah. I like those, you
3: Get those, that big box with the blueberry and the raspberry. And, um, yeah, yeah. Those, those are extremely popular. Um, so that's, that's a win-win for, for both of us. Um, the, the green, um, nature Valley granola bars.
0: Yeah. I like um, those too. Yeah. They're okay. So, yeah. All right. That's good. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so those are e- easy and, and, and um, to go with, but basically if you also can bring option water bottle, keep hydrated during that time, that's a big key. Um, and then if you need to bring a protein powder to mix with, with that um, you know, a, a juice, um, orange juice. I'm, I'm not a big apple juice fan, but o- orange juice, something like that. The, that way I'm getting some potassium in them as well. Um,
0: to yeah, keep- you, you mentioned the hydration, you know, sometimes I'll hear, uh, you know, people say, you know, we're maybe we're flying to a hot climate. We're leaving from a, from a cooler or cold climate and, uh, you know, drink water during the week to, to prepare your body. Is that, is that fact or fiction? How, how does that work?
3: Um, It is, but I also, a lot of times um, they'll, they'll drink almost where they're so focused on just, just water as their fluid, uh, which, which can be fine, but then we might be missing some of the electrolytes um, Mm. as well. So, you know, I try to get potassium from the foods. Of course we use body armor, so that's a higher potassium sports drink. Uh, But it's really the sodium that I'll start to get them used to. Um, and what I tell them is, you know, I, I don't want them, um, peeing clear and that's how we really determine. Now we, we test our athletes, um, with a refractometer, um, but guaranteed even just testing with a device and then looking at the color of the urine, they match really well. Mm -hmm. So I don't want an apple juice. Um, that's over concentrated. Drink lots of water, and then you know, some are. I'm drinking lots and lots of water, but they can even still cramp on the other end, and it's it the it's it's clear. So now we we've diluted the electrolytes out, um, and they tend to go to the bathroom more too. So that's that's not a whole lot of fun. having to go all the time. How many
0: days in advance would, it, would, you, would you say you need to maybe hydrate yourself?
3: It depends on what you've been doing through that week. Have you kind of been on top of it through the week um, is, is a key. And that's where you start practicing uh, your nutrition. So you also practice your hydration because everyone can be different. I, I yeah. have one of our male players. He can easily lose eight to 10 pounds of sweat. Wow. And, and so, and then I have one that maybe even lose, you know, two to four pounds on the lighter side. Um, And according to that, then I can also um, determine their sodium needs. Um, So you kind of work, practice that throughout. And then um, we will kind of focus, especially on our higher risk crampers or whether it be fatigue, I'll also work on carbohydrates, but we'll work on the sodium um, and I'll have an electrolyte drink for them. Um, Usually it's, I call it their homework and they'll take that home the night before.
0: Okay. Yeah. Nutrition homework. All right. How about, so how about later at night? So, you know, the day's winding down and everybody, you know, gets a little hungry at some point, you know, depending on how late they're, they're up, maybe they're, you know, the professional athletes are studying film or, or maybe they're just lounging, who knows, but is there a particular thing that's
3: (laughs) playing video games? Yeah. Yeah. That
0: too. I I forgot about that. The, is, is there, are there particular food items that uh, would be acceptable? You know, you always hear don't, don't eat anything right before you go to sleep and that kind of thing. But uh, how how about for an athlete that's, that's active? Uh,
3: Actually um, depending on you know, some of the goals, but also depending on how that day was, if it was an intense or heavy lift day or anything like that, that the muscles damaged, I would actually encourage a a bedtime um, snack and really kind of lean towards the protein on that. So we've seen that we can um, basically use that time during sleep um, when the growth hormones at its best, you can do a lot of uh, repairing and recovery while you're sleeping. Um, not only for the muscle, but getting good sleep is also helpful for the brain and memory and and learning. Um, but but it's a great time to kind of have a pre-feed before you go to bed um, to really allow for that time to you know for muscle protein synthesis to maximize itself. So it could be um, you know try to get somewhere in the 30, twenty to thirty gram range. So it could be a shake before you go to bed. It could be a half oh. a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and you know maybe a little bit of protein powder and some milk um, if okay. you're not really wanting to cook anything. Yeah, um, yeah. A, a yogurt yogurt parfait.